prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I mean, that is the Christian life, isn't it? Where we're united to Christ, but constantly God brings us back. Constantly God adjusts our conscience and causes us to be pricked when we're sinning or being tempted. Or it's a constant refocusing on the Lord. And our God is gracious. Our God is gracious. Today's sermon is titled, Christ's View of Marriage. Christ's View of Marriage. In other words, we want to hear from Jesus Christ, the architect of marriage, to, so, us, we, so that we understand what marriage is all about. This admittedly has been a very difficult portion of scripture. There's some difficult things to understand about marriage and, and, and divorce. But just as I think about my own marriage, our marriage is a blessing from the Lord. You know? But however, our marriages, perhaps you could relate to us, Charlotte and I, brings us some of the greatest joys, but also some of the more humbling moments as well. So this has been a good portion for me to sit under all week long. But it was June 26th, 2015, when the White House was lit up with the rainbow lights. I don't know if you guys remember that, but I remember that. I was in Seattle, and I'm watching this and saying, what in the world is going on? We talked about these things, but we're actually going ahead with this. The rainbow flag, the LGBTQ flag has been hijacked and hung in government buildings and all over the place, all over the country, all over the world. And that's been almost nine years. Can you imagine? Nine years. Think about it. If you're 19 or a teenager, you're a little one when this happened. If you're 30 years old, you're in your young 20s thinking about what is going on. I, the leadership of our church, we have a grave concern for, for our church and for the next generation to understand what marriage is all about. And so as we listen to God battle with the Pharisees today, Jesus Christ gives us a very clear understanding of what marriage is all about. We need to hear this. Young people, hear me what I'm about to say. I trust that your mothers and fathers have told you the truth. Other churchmen have told you the truth. And that's good. That's good, but what's more important is to hear from Jesus Christ himself so that this is not mom and dad's opinion. This is not an old-fashioned way of thinking. This is an eternal truth that we're talking about when we're talking about marriage here. And there's a lot of confusion. The Pope seems to be confused as well for our Catholic friends. There's a lot of confusion out there. Very clear that we need to talk about this and and this is one of the beauties of sequential exposition. What is sequential exposition? That means we go verse by verse by verse through books of the Bible generally. There's times where we'll take a break and cover a topic. Nothing wrong with that. But sequential exposition, my seminary mentors would say, keeps us from cherry-picking things that we want to talk about. Is divorce something I want to talk about naturally? Not necessarily. But here it is, Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to cover 1 through 12 today. 
A little bit of context as we read this portion here. Mark 10, 1 through 12 is this. This is a transition for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 9, he had a private teaching session with the 12 in Peter's home in Capernaum. Now they leave there and Jesus Christ, our Lord, makes his final approach to Jerusalem to ultimately to die on the cross. And this is where, where we pick up the scene where he engages a crowd now. For he goes from the private ministry with the 12 to a very public open ministry with a huge crowd. So let's rise if you're able to. We do this to honor God's word. We believe this at Evergreen Baptist Church. When we hear God's word read, the Bible, you're literally hearing from God right now. This is one of the reasons why we rise to, uh, to honor God's word. Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12. And standing up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. And some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore... God has joined together. Let no man separate. Again in the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. This is God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. I pray by your spirit, you guard my heart from sin and temptation. I pray by your spirit, you guard the church's ears so that we could hear you clearly, Lord. Give us ears to hear, Lord, what you're saying. And I pray Christ, your son, will be lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Some have asked, what is the big deal about this? Why can't you just let people live the way they want to? Why is Satan smiling right now, if not laughing at what is happening in the world, in the Western world particularly? Why is he smiling from ear to ear right now? Is it because civilization is beginning to crumble? Many people say when marriages are broken and marriages start falling apart, civilization soon seems to follow. Is it because morality is being blurred? Why Satan is so happy? Well, as Sister Paulina read in Ephesians 5.32, marriage is a symbol. Marriage serves as a symbol of Christ's union with his church. All right? We are the bride of Christ. We're married and united to Jesus Christ. It pleases Satan greatly to make marriage, this symbol, a mockery. And he's very happy about that. He's happy to see man and woman 
men and women living in a blizzard of confusion, creating concerns and question marks for the next generation. We're going to hear from the Lord right now. And this is where providentially God uses a trap that's set before him to teach on marriage. And not only that, to teach us 2,000 years on marriage. So verses 1 through 3 sets the context of this teaching session. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. The Lord's headquarters for roughly three years has been in northern Israel and in Galilee in a city called Capernaum. This is where Peter's home was. And he started moving south, moving south towards Jerusalem. The march is on towards the cross. And it says that he went beyond the Jordan. This is Perea. This area is east of Jerusalem, east of Jericho, east of the Jordan River. Southern Israel, but east of Jerusalem. And it says the crowds were gathering around him. And after all, this is what he's been used to. He is the great miracle worker. He is the one that people have been wondering, is this the Messiah? So a great crowd gathered, and with crowds, he has disciples there, he has seekers there, but he also has old enemies show up, the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees, you may ask? You know, perhaps you're new to Christianity or new to uh, just studying the Bible. The Pharisees were the religious rulers, the religious elite of the time. They're Jewish religious rulers who were very quite, who were quite influential in that time. They set a trap. And the religious rulers, the Pharisees, asked Jesus this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? That seems like a benign question today in light of our culture and our context. Divorce happens all the time. But why was this a trap? They were interested in setting traps. They've been setting traps for the Lord constantly. And in Mark chapter 3, the first trap that was set is this. I believe they set, implanted a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day to see if Jesus Christ would have compassion and heal him on the Sabbath and break the Sabbath. Sure enough, the Lord Jesus, clearly knowing what they're doing, does the right thing and heals the man. He does what he wants to do and heals the man. And they go, aha, we got him now. And in Mark chapter 3, it says that the Pharisees and Herodians conspired to destroy him. It was on. They're trying to destroy him from that moment on. And why is it a trap? They're in Perea. This region of Israel is King Herod's territory. King Herod. Why is King Herod a big deal? In Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist, the greatest born of a woman, rebukes King Herod and says, it is unlawful for you to have her, King Herod. Herodias is your brother's wife. In other words, you can't, she divorced, she left your brother to be with you. You need to repent, Herod. And Herodias' wife did not like that. Eventually, it worked, they work it out so that John the Baptist is beheaded and killed. So this is a significant question that's asked to Jesus Christ in this region with that type of uh, audience around. And how does the Lord uh, respond to this question? The Lord knows everything and how he responds to teach us how for us to respond to questions as well. He doesn't turn to the priests. 
He doesn't turn to Caesar of Rome, who's in control of the world at the time. He doesn't, he does not, he doesn't quote some philosopher. But he goes right to God's word. That's where we should go. Whenever we're challenged, whenever we're tested, particular things about marriage and other things, let's go to God's word. Let's not go to the internet. Let's not go to the universities. Let's not go to other people. Let's go right to God. And in verse 3, he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? What did Moses command you? And this on-ramps into our first point. As Christ's view on marriage is unveiled and how Christ's view on marriage constrains, point number one, constrains divorce. Constrains divorce. Verse four says this, and they said, this is how the Pharisees answered, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Were they correct? They knew the Bible. They were absolutely correct. Moses did permit divorce in Deuteronomy 24, If you're taking notes, you want to write that down. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, this is the portion where Moses permits men to give their wives a certificate of divorce. And this is how Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 says, how it goes. If a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he's allowed to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So somehow, if men were not happy with their wives because they find some kind of indecency, they could write a certificate of divorce, give it to her, and send her away. Now, what does this mean, indecency, indecency or losing favor in his eyes? What, what, what are we talking about here? Well, there are two schools of thought there. Number one, the more conservative interpretation, the school of Shammai says only for adultery, only for unchastity can you divorce your wife. Only through, uh, can you write this certificate of divorce if there's some kind of sexual immorality in the marriage. Okay, that's one. The other, perhaps the more popular view, the school of Hillel, which is much more of a liberal interpretation. One end, Adultery is the only way to write, give a certificate of divorce. And the other end, this is what the, this school says, if she spoiled the dish for him, meaning if she burned dinner for him. Rabbi Akiba says, if you find someone prettier than her, right? So <laughs> these are on two ends of the spectrum. Which one, Jesus? Which one? Interpret this for us. In other words, this liberal view gave almost, almost any reason to divorce your wife. Therefore, the divorce culture was real in the, in the, for the Jews. Certainly in the Greco-Roman world, the, the, the Romans and the, and the Greeks, I mean, divorce was rampant in that culture. Today, we, we know the stats. Sadly, close to, if not over 50% of marriages end up in divorce. This is a reality for us. We're filled with this divorce culture. So as, as Jesus speaks into his time, he's speaking quite loudly to our time as well. We need to understand this. And today, there could be a variety of reasons for divorce. You may be divorced here as you sit here or experience a divorce, right? Some of the... Reasons could be varied, and, 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 and that's not necessarily what I'm here to talk about, but divorce is a real thing here in our world. I remember a time before even pastoring officially, 
back in coaching days and numerous people, my wife and I had, had opportunity to counsel. We catch wind of some marital issues and thankfully they're willing to see us, see me. And these were professing believers, professing believers. And we'd walk to, through with them and talk to, talk to them. Is, is there any immorality or unfaithfulness there? No. Is there any kind of abuse there? No. What's the problem then? I want to leave because I believe God wants me to be happy. That's kind of the school of Hillel interpretation, right? And irreconcilable differences. I mean, basically you come up with any reason today legally on the legal end, but morally it seems like some Christians have taken that approach. Professing believers. These are non-believers. These are professed believers. But how does this constrain divorce? Because it seems like Moses opened the door and allows and permitted divorce. Well, verse 5, Jesus says, but Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote for you this commandment, hardness of heart. The Jews, the Israelites, were rebellious or sinful. Who would even come up with something like this where you could divorce your wife if she doesn't cook the meal well enough? I mean, what is that about? Not even non-believers or secular people don't even think that. It's unbelievable, right? But Moses, actually in Deuteronomy 24, is constraining or regulating divorce, meaning you just can't leave just because you feel like it. It forced the man, the husband, to write a certificate of divorce and state the specific reason for divorce. If it was adultery, it's adultery, which is punishable by death at the time through stoning. But if it was something else, it, was, it, it put him accountable to write that reason down, whether it's ridiculous or valid. And therefore, this is the reason that was given. This, this permission actually constrained divorce. It wasn't just a willy-nilly thing. Now, it got more serious when you had to write a certificate of divorce. It actually protected the ousted wife because if she was divorced for another reason, everyone knew this is why my husband is sending me away. Right? So that kind of preserved her reputation. And this is an act of God's kindness to allow this to happen, to kind of mitigate the damage caused by divorce. So by Moses, by God having Moses write in Deuteronomy 24 a permission to give a certificate of divorce, God isn't opening the door for divorce. He's actually trying to help control it because the people, we people could be so sinful that we are come up with any reason to abandon our spouse, man or woman. Therefore, you might be asking, Pastor, then what is our position on divorce? All right, so let's apply this here. I mean, and I, I want to be very careful and very, very humble. I talked to some older pastors and people at the seminary, and this is, they said this is the Mount Everest of pastoral counseling. I mean, this is a very complicated issue. This is not super simple, and you just give a flippant answer. This is a very difficult uh, situation. But I'll give you some clear biblical reasons for divorce, where divorce is permissible, okay? 
Number one, Matthew 19.9, in this parallel portion where Matthew speaks about something very similar to what's happening in Mark 10, it says, and I say to you, Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So immorality, pornea, anything, any sex outside of marriage is the grounds for permiss- it gives grounds for permitting divorce biblically. Okay, number two, 1 Corinthians 7, 15 describes when an unbeliever leaves a believer and abandons them, they say, you are free now. You're not enslaved to this, uh, this uh, union anymore. God has called us to peace. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. So adultery is one reason and abandonment is another, meaning your spouse just leaves you, picks up and leaves you. All right, those are two clear things uh, uh, examples or situations where God permits divorce. Oftentimes there's abandonment. There could be abuse, physical, mental, verbal abuse. But those are the reasons. Adultery and abandonment. Adultery and abandonment. But notice it says in verse 4 that Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce in Santa Rae. It doesn't say required. It says permitted. So what am I saying here? The goal is always to reconcile. All right? the, the goal is always to f- seek forgiveness, to forgive one another, to reconcile. After all, this is why we have the gospel, because we're all sinners saved by grace. The goal is to reconcile. And as far as it depends upon you, spouse, seek peace. It's what God had called us to do. So divorce is the last resort. This is not option one or two or three. This is the very end of the line here. You've done everything you can to seek reconciliation. But God, but God in his kindness permits it because the Lord knows, although the ideal is to be together for a lifetime, we do live in a sinful, fallen world and things do get messy, right? And so that's point number one, how Christ's view constrains divorce. Let's go to point number two. Christ's view on marriage complements male and female. Complements male and female. Look, turn with me to verse six. But from the beginning of creation, the Bible says, but from the beginning of creation, this is before the fall. This is before the flood. This is before civilization is, is established as we know it. This is before the established church, Matthew 16. This is before any age of higher learning by people. This is, before, this is when marriage was established, at the beginning, at creation. This is, in other words, Jesus is preaching Genesis 1.27 to the Pharisees and to the crowd. And where God himself made man and woman in their image. And he intended for man and woman to come together. Matter of fact, God is the one who performed the first marriage ceremony in the garden. It wasn't a pastor or any judge. Therefore, no pastor, no philosopher, no president, no professor, no pope is able to define or redefine what marriage is. God himself defined marriage as between a man and a woman. One man, not two men, one man and one woman. Not one man and a man, not one woman and a woman, one man and one woman. Clear as day right there. And God made them male and female. Man did not create male and female. 
as much as we try to define what that is or as much as some political officials cannot even define what a male and female is today, man did not define male and female. God created both male and female. Man did not assign whether you're a male or female either. God is the one who both assigned if you're a male or female. God is the one who created man and woman. God is the one that who assigns if you're a man or a woman. God is also the one that who made Adam and Eve, that there's man and woman, to be one, to come together. And Genesis 2:18 talks about how God made man and woman to complement one another. Genesis 2:18 says, "It is not good for the man to be alone." I will make him a helper suitable for him. It's not good to be, for a man to be alone. This is a general truism. Obviously, there are men and women who are called into singleness, who have the gift of singleness, for, as 1 Corinthians 7 talks about. But on average, most men, most women are going to be joined together in marriage. Okay, this is what happens. And, and brothers, hear this now. This, this word helper in the Old Testament it's a significant word. God gave you, who, brother who's married, a helper. A helper. What does this mean? This is talking about complementary design. A helper is a special word. This helper carries the meaning of a protector. She is your refuge. She's your fortress. She guards your heart. She guards your mind, making sure you're thinking right. She's a source of strength. This word helper carries her, meaning that she is your source of strength. She strengthens you. And not only that, she's a custom fit for you. One of the key people on a, on a football team is the equipment manager. Why is that? The equipment manager is the one who's tasked to find and issue out equipment for everybody on the team. And the football team is quite diverse. You got large people and really large people okay you have people who are who are fast people who are lean people who are bigger you have people who have been dealing with certain type of injuries shoulders legs backs all kinds of things you got people who perform different positions and functions for the team therefore it's not a one-size-fits-all type of situation where the equipment guy needs to measure you up understand where you need to get some extra protection and also to free you up so you're not so mobile uh, so constricted so you, could, you can't perform your role the equipment man ma manager's role is to equip you to be successful all right and and this is what men brothers this is what god does to bless you if you have a wife God has blessed you with a custom fit. And let me explain. A helpmate who complements your strengths and your weaknesses. You don't need two of you. I don't need two of me, trust me, in my strengths and my weaknesses. This helpmate actually undergirds you to perform the role that, and calling that God's given you. It's very clear here. It's a custom fit. I mean, behind every good man is a great woman. I, I believe that. I mean, consider your calling, brothers. Think about what you've been doing all your life. And think about what you've been built to do. God has given you a custom fit. I mean, in, this is my own example of coaching and pastoring. Charlotte's makeup is perfect for me. 
She definitely compliments my weaknesses. I got a lot of them. She's very patient with me. She definitely compliments my strengths. Although it's not a perfect marriage, I can see where God has called me to pastor. If I didn't have a wife that thrives under pastoral ministry, I would not be, have been called to do this, or it would have been a short-lived calling here. I could see that, and, and, and we celebrated our 20th anniversary last July, and I think the more you live with one another, the more you experience one another, the more it's obvious. When I was younger, it's just, I'm going, and we're all going, I, and I understand that. But the sooner, and I'm talking to those who've been married in a short time, the sooner you can start recognizing this, brothers, you may not like it all the time, which is part of, all part of God's design. You gotta appreciate and cherish your bride as Ephesians 5 says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You gotta say, man, thank you, God. It, it, it isn't an act of, uh, act of obligation. It isn't an act of worship. Thank you, God, for providing me with my helpmates. We need to understand this. We need to understand this because marriage is not just something to be endured. It's something to live in and to thrive in, to understand that. I'm grateful, grateful for our wives. I'm grateful for our wives. So brother, let's think about that this week. Let's think about how she compliments you in a special way. And let that just overflow to a level of gratitude unto the Lord and generate greater worship for him and generate greater love for our wives. Let's go on to the third point. Christ's view on marriage commits men and women. Commits man and wife, excuse me, man and wife. Verse seven, turn with me to verse seven here out of Mark 10. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Jesus Christ is preaching Genesis 2.24. He goes to the beginning as we talked about earlier. This commitment, marriage commitment is an all-in commitment. Let me explain what I mean by that. It says this man, a man will leave his father and mother. There's a leaving in marriage. That means you abandon old things. You sacrifice old things, and you're fully committed to new things. That means you abandon your old primary allegiances. That means you abandon primary loyalties. That means you abandon former ways of doing things that you're accustomed to doing as a son or a daughter underneath your father and mother. That means you abandon first primary investments now. No longer am I part of this nuclear family. I'm part of this nuclear union now. In Genesis 2.24, it adds, you cleave to his wife. This, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That means you are united. That means you form a new commitment. And you become one. It means more than some kind of marriage contract or some kind of a social obligation or just simply living together. It's more than that. Although it may feel like that sometimes, it's more than that. It means that you're glued together. For those of us who are married, we're glued to our spouses. If you're thinking about getting married, that means you're gonna be glued to your spouse. Doesn't mean you forget about mom and dad. Doesn't mean you forget about brother or sister. But that uh, primary uh, emphasis is, no, is severed and that becomes number two and number one becomes, on a human level, becomes your spouse. 
You're all in. All the chips are in for this new relationship. You're glued together. That means you, you, you're one in body and physically. Perhaps the Lord will call you to reproduce and be fruitful and multiply. That means you're one in resources. That means your money, your property, your knowledge, all that is together now. It's not your account, my account. It's our account. That's how it works. Now, however you organize, that's another thing. But in mind and heart, it's our resources. You're one in mind. You think the same things. You have the same convictions. You have the same affections, one in heart. You love Christ together. You love the things of Christ together. You love the church. You have one in convictions. You believe the same things. One in direction, how you want to spend your time and your money. It's all going in the same direction. In other words, you're one in discipleship. Your spouse is your primary discipleship partner for the rest of your life. God gave you this helpmate both ways to help each other pursue Christ together. And there's only room for two. One man and one woman. Marriage math would say one plus one equals one, okay? And that's marriage math. One plus one. One man, one woman equals one. We're one in flesh now. That's why he says in Ephesians 5, 28, husband, love your wife as your own bodies. We're one. We're one. Therefore, isn't it clear why you cannot be unequally yoked? Meaning if you're a professed believer, there's no way God blesses a marriage to a non-believer. I get it. Maybe it's happened in the past and providentially God was gracious and kind and both spouses become Christians. But if you are involved with a non-believing person, that's like last week's sermon, cut off your hand and move on. This is very serious because oil and water do not mix. Believers and non-believers have different natures, different desires, different loves, different direction in life. There's no way that mixes well at all. I mean, you get one plus one equals two right there. That, this is not God's design for marriage. It's impossible to mix a believer and a non-believer in this oneness that Jesus Christ is talking about. I mean, you have different loves, different convictions. You're going in different directions and ultimately you have different goals. I mean, you, you may share some common goals like you want to balance the books, you want to buy a house, maybe you have kids, but imagine when the kids come, how are you going to raise them, in Christ or in the world? Honey, we need to make sure the Lord's Day is primary. What? We're doing something else on Sundays. I mean, think about just something as simple as that. Oneness requires two believers coming together. And how long is this commitment? Let's turn to verse 9 here of Mark 10. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, from the very beginning, marriage was meant to be permanent. From the very beginning, before sin even entered, there was only one man and one woman. Adam didn't have another choice. It was, that was it. It was all in. And it never intended for divorce to be there. Not a pastor nor a judge brought this union together. It was God. God 
designed the marriage uh, uh, um, concept, the, the institution of marriage, God actually providentially brought you and your spouse together as well. It's all God. Maybe a pastor or a judge kind of presided over some kind of ceremony, but it was God. God is the one that you made the vow to, amen? God is the one that you promised that you would cherish her for the rest of your life. When you heard these vows or these uh, uh, intentions under God, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife and be faithful to her so long as you both shall live? And when you said, I do or I will, you made that promise to God first and foremost. Then to your spouse and then to family and friends. But it is primarily to God. Under God, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband and be faithful to her so long as you both shall live? And you said, I do, I will. Happily, you made this promise before God. I want to apply this to the singles in, of, of our church, you know, and, and I think this is going to encourage those who've been married a long time too and maybe even a short time, but singles, I want you to think through four things. I'm, I'm, I'm going to simply talk to you I'm 47 now, so I'm getting to the age where I could talk to you kind of <laughs> in a fatherly way. So let me, let me speak to you this way. Because God wants what's best for you. The church wants what's best for you. Number one, think about the seriousness of this decision to marry someone. Next to following Christ, this is the greatest decision in your life. Next to following Christ, marrying your spouse is the greatest decision in your life. Number two, Think deeply about whoever you have in mind. Do they love Christ? Is it obvious? Do they, like, when you think, close your eyes, this, yes, she loves Christ. Number three, two part, one for the sisters and one for the brothers, but for, first to the sisters, it's the same thing I tell my own daughters. Ask yourself this question. This is very important now. Can I thrive under his spiritual leadership? Close your eyes when you get away. Think through this. Can I leave dad's leadership, assuming there's some kind of spiritual leadership? If not, understand. Would you be content leaving dad's spiritual leadership and coming under this person's spiritual leadership for the rest of your life, where dad is number two from here on out? Do you believe that you can thrive under his spiritual leadership? And brothers, this is important now. I'm speaking to you as younger brothers or sons. Is she someone that will follow your leadership? Think through these things. Because if anyone ever asked me for advice on marriage before getting married, I'm going to make these things plainly clear. And if I get a sense that this is a, a bad match, I might tell you what I think. <laughs> I might tell you what I think, if it helps. And number four, finally, define the goal of marriage. Define the goal of marriage. It's about holiness, not necessarily happiness. There are moments where it's not very happy for any of us. But is your wife, your husband is there to help you become more holy? to become more like Christ. like It's a discipleship relationship. Because if you ask me these things after you're married, 
I'm going to give you a different response. I'm going to give you a different response, barring anything dangerous going on in your life. I'm going to hang in there. Hang in there. This is a, you're being tested now. You're being tested now, and God's discipling you through this. Okay? So please, I, singles, I, I, I want this, what's best for you, and the church wants what's best for you. Please take this to heart. I'm not saying that just because I've been married 20 years, I know everything about marriage. I certainly don't. Nor am I saying that I have a perfect marriage. I certainly not saying that. However, I'm saying think about these things. These are tried and true things for you to think about. And then finally, the fourth point, Christ's view of marriage condemns adultery. Let's look at verse 10 and, uh, through 12. And in the house, they get back to a private gathering. The disciples, the 12, began questioning him about this again. This is about divorce and marriage. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. I just want to point out just a, something that might be encouraging for all of us. Right there, Jesus puts men and women on the same plane right there. It's the same standard for the man, same standard for the woman. That's, that's very big right there for us to acknowledge that. But Jesus makes clear that standard is this. If you separate or divorce, excuse me, divorce your spouse for an unbiblical reason, you are committing adultery and you get, you get united with another person, you're committing adultery. God sees you as committing adultery. In no unclear terms. So is Jesus worried about the trap? I don't think he's worried about the trap. He knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He's being very clear about teaching on marriage. I'm going to conclude here with uh, four encouragements because I, I want us to be very clear uh, on some of these things. So these final four encouragements, I pray that this is particularly encouraging to, to people here. Number one, God hates divorce. Malachi 2.16. The Jews are d divorcing their Jewish wives and marrying the pagan wives after coming back from exile and God says, I hate divorce. Why does he hate divorce? Because A, it, it corrupts the intended meaning of marriage from the beginning. It's, it's meant for a lifetime. Number two, he hates divorce because there's so much pain inflicted on others. Think about it. This is not just you. You're making a decision for. You're making a decision for your children, your maybe someday gr uh, grandchildren, your mothers, your fathers, your uh, brothers and sisters and your community in the church, there's a significant effect that takes place when people are divorced. God says, I hate divorce. It could have a generational impact. There's a lot on the line. If you're thinking about divorce, just know that right now. God hates divorce. Number two, God permits divorce. God graciously permits divorce. This is not how it's meant to be. He permits, not requires divorce. Permits, not requires divorce. The hope is that one will reconcile. Number three, there are no perfect marriages. I don't care who you're thinking about. Starting from me, I don't have a perfect marriage with Charlotte. I'm not a perfect husband. She's not a perfect wife. There are no perfect marriages. Therefore, I encourage you, Evergreen Baptist Church, to share your struggles with 
another brother or sister. If you're a, a brother to another brother, not to another sister. If you're a sister to another sister. If you're in a couple's man and wife to another man and wife couple. Be smart about that, right? Obviously, I'm trying to make that plainly clear. But it's okay. Share your burdens, your scars with one another. No one's going to think you're a junior varsity Christian if you admit you're having a hard time in marriage. Otherwise, they're just being a hypocrite. Okay, so if you're worried about, oh, I'm going to be seen as less than, then don't worry about that. We're all sinners saved by grace. Obviously, we want strong marriages. I'm not saying we lower the standards, but let's be realistic here. That's number three. Number four, finally. I'm speaking to this in a, as loving and as compassionate as possible for those who have been in, trapped in adultery. I want you to know it is a sin. Clearly talked about in Mark 10. But God forgives. God forgives. Perhaps you left your spouse for another for unbiblical reasons. God forgives. Certainly there's consequences and you perhaps have to live with them. But God forgives. Upon repentance. Have you repented of this sin to the Lord? This is not just a given just because God forgives that you have nothing to do. Have you turned and say, Lord, forgive me, this is wrong. Have you reached out to your former spouse and treated him or her as a brother or sister? No longer as a spouse, but now a brother or sister that you sinned against and asked for forgiveness from them. Have you done these things? God forgives. God forgives. What if you're in a marriage a second marriage that is, didn't follow biblical prescription. Deuteronomy 24 says, the former spouse cannot even receive you back. So if you think, am I supposed to divorce again and then try to come back to my original spouse? God forgives. Turn from, confess that original sin. Two wrongs don't make a right. Be faithful to your spouse. God forgives. Ephesians 5.32, Paulina read, is talked about this mystery is great. This is talking about marriage is a great mystery. This is talking about this is a symbol of Christ's union with the church. And at Evergreen Baptist Church, I want to make this very clear. I hope you're not hearing this as a lowering of any standards. We want to revere marriage. Okay, we want to take marriage seriously. We want to be known as a, uh, as a body of believers who have strong marriages, who protect their marriages, who take seriously their marriages. That's what I, this is what the Bible wants us to, uh, to be emphasizing. However, as much as we want to revere marriage, we don't want to worship marriage. Marriage is merely a symbol of Christ and the church. We don't worship Christ, our hope. So if you're thinking through, how can Christ ever forgive me of my adultery? Repent and trust in the gospel. John 8 talks about a woman caught in adultery. 
And as they're about to stone her, the Lord intervenes and says, stop. And starts calling out other people's sins and perhaps, and they leave. And she, he asks this woman who's just perhaps shaking and just ready to die. And it could have perhaps even lift up her eyes. He asks them, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No one, Lord, she said. You know what he said? I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. So if you have been marked with adultery, it's serious. But go now and sin no more. Repent. Trust in the gospel. Adultery may describe your past, but Christ Jesus defines your present and your future. Right? This is what we're talking about. Christ is our hope. We don't worship a symbol. We worship Christ himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time to preach on Mark 10. I pray, Father, there's a unique encouragement for those that need encouragement right now particularly those who maybe had difficult marriages or difficult pasts, particularly those who have maybe gone and fallen into the trap of adultery, Lord. Father, I pray the gospel would seem even greater and greater. Jesus, you died on the cross to pay the price for sinners. Jesus, you said, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus, you say that, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. So, Father, I pray that the sick will cry out to you and cherish you even more. And so, Father God, I pray there'll be a culture at Evergreen Baptist Church of repentance and forgiveness, and we would be defined by your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.